0: Hey, what's happening, everybody? My name is Jimmy. I'm glad to be with you guys at Shades, and I can tell you I have never, ever, ever in my life been to an event like this, and I want to say that in all the best ways. That was phenomenal. Give yourselves some hand. and Pastor George, so, so uh, George and Megan are friends of uh, mine and my wife, Kristen's, and uh, it's just such an honor to get to be here with you, and, and George, it means a lot to be here at your invitation because I have... So much respect and admiration for you and everything that God's used you to do over many years, and your family to do over many years, and Megan, just the family that you guys are raising, the ministry that you're doing together, means more to Christian to, and to me, and to people around the world that you can't even, than you can even imagine. So thank you guys for serving so faithfully, and congratulations, Shades Mountain, for calling George Wright as your pastor. Good decision, very, very good. Now. I'm a pastor in South Florida, so our church is called The Family Church. Family Church in South Florida is over three different counties. We have 13 different locations. We speak all these different languages. It's a multicultural, multi-generational, multi-campus movement in uh, South Florida. And we care a lot about trying to have a neighborhood church in a neighborhood building with a neighborhood pastor that speaks the neighborhood language in every neighborhood that we can. Because we have a heart, And a a vision and a mission from God for our region of the country. But what I'm reminded of tonight is that God is at work in every region of the world and that God has people in every region of the world. And it's such an honor. And I just feel such a brotherhood here and a brotherhood and a sisterhood with you. And just what an honor it is to get to be with the people of God. Now, I do have a family. So, my wife, Kristen, and my oldest daughter, Anna Kate, are sitting down here on the second row. I have a picture of our family. These are our children. So Christian and I have, we have uh, eight children, six boys and two girls. We have uh, two grandchildren and uh, hopefully many more to come. And this is our uh, little family. And so we all live down there in South Florida with the ones. So uh, you see the one there in the middle in the blue shorts, he's holding a baby. His name's James. That's our oldest. James is a, an officer, an infantry officer with the uh, 10th Mountain Division. He's currently deployed, helping keep us all safe. We're grateful for him and what God's doing in his life. We also have our other married son there in the pink shirt holding a little girl, the bow in her hair. That's his daughter. And so Daniel is uh, serving at a church in Louisville, Kentucky, a multi-site church there. And he's in seminary. He's called to the ministry. Thank God for that. And then I got two boys uh, play football in college out in Missouri. I've got two in high school and two in middle school. And some of you, I'm going to go ahead and answer some of the questions that you have because whenever I start talking about that, people have questions. They want to know immediately like how many of them are twins? And the answer is none of them are twins. They came one at a time, every single one of them. And then people want to know how many of them did you adopt? And the answer is we believe in adoption, but we have not adopted any children. Every one of those children is homemade at our house. (laughs) And then people want to ask me a question from time to time. I'll speak and they'll say, well, you're not one of those Christians who thinks that birth control is a sin, are you? It's kind of a personal question, to be honest. And I say, no, we don't think birth control is a sin. We just never figured out how to use it properly. And so that's how we ended up with all of those kids. But we're grateful for every single one of our children. They're a joy to us. And they're a lot of fun. And I think about all the potential that those children have to do great things for God. And boy, when you have all these children, George, up here singing and and excited about Jesus, and excited about missions, and waving flags, and clapping their hands, and jumping up and down, and all the teenagers sitting down here, you just think about all of the firepower that this church has, all of the firepower that this church is is preparing to go out into the world and to make a difference, and then we had all those missionaries, people who are laying it on the line, who've sold out, who've abandoned every other opportunity to lay hold of the opportunities that God has given them. And then this great church comes around them and cheers for them and loves them and helps to fund their ministry. And what that means is that when you give to the global impact, when you you give to this at Shades Mountain Baptist Church, when you give here, it means every time one of them in New York City or in a secure location around the world or in Salt Lake City or right here in Birmingham, every time one of them gives a cup of cold water, a little bit of you gets out there and gives them a cup of cold water. And every time one of them gets even in hiding and in secret and baptizes a new believer in Jesus, a little bit of you gets in the water with them and baptizes them with them. That's the joy of giving and being a part of a sending church like Shades Mountain. And it's such an honor and a privilege to be with you. So I do want to talk to you. I'm going to do a little Bible study with you, if I could, just for a few minutes. It's a Nehemiah chapter 6 is where we're going to do our Bible study. I don't know if you want to look it up in the Bible. We'll put the words on the screen. you got Bibles in your pews if you want. Nehemiah chapter 6. But I want to talk to you about the joy of doing hard things. The joy of doing hard things. Because every one of us is made by God and designed by God and empowered by God to do hard things. It's not just for the missionaries in the secure location. It's not just for the missionary who sold everything and moved to Salt Lake City. It's not just for people working in urban centers with hurting people. All of us are made by God to do hard things. And if we're going to be everything that God wants us to be, we're going to be faced with hard things. I mean, they're business owners. It's not just pastors. They're business owners here. And some of you as business owners are having to do hard things. There are single moms in the room right now, and you're having to do hard things and there are some with difficult marriages in the room and you're having to do hard things, just trying to hold it together. And there are blended families and there are people who are single and you're having to figure out how you're gonna manage that. People in churches all over battle same-sex attraction. There are foster parents, there are senior adults, there are police officers and teachers and people who work for the civil government. There are new immigrants, there are parents of little children, parents of teenagers, parents of grown kids, people in recovery people who've experienced prejudice and discrimination, people who've been harmed by abuse and people all over this room, even though we're cheering and shouting and singing about the grace of God, a lot of us in this room are called to do hard things. And you're sitting here right now thinking about the challenge and the difficulty that you face, but every single thing that God puts in front of us to do is possible because God's will is always possible. And so as Christians and believers in Christ, those of us who've been saved by Jesus, crucified for our sins and raised from the dead, we don't sit around feeling sorry for ourselves and we don't sit around in the the emotional fetal position all the time because we know that what St. Paul said is true, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's why we don't have to get bitter, we don't have to lose our temper and we certainly don't throw up our hands and quit and we learn from the scriptures that there is joy in doing hard things. And you guys are doing hard things as a church family. I mean, God's calling Shades Mountain to be a church for the nations. Look at you. Look at you. Look at what you, you are doing. Look at the movement that you're participating in. It's, it's exciting. But you can't just be a church for the nations. You've also got to be a church for the neighborhoods. It's one thing to send money and people and take trips around the world. But we've also got to send money and people and take trips across the street, don't we? I, I mean, there are neighborhoods in Birmingham with all kinds of hurt and all kinds of lostness and all kinds of brokenness. And we can't just be a church for the nations, we have gotta be a church for the neighborhoods. If we say we're a church for the nations and we're not a church for the neighborhoods, I think God says we're hypocrites. And if we're a church for the neighborhoods but we're not a church for the nation, I think God says we're hypocrites because God cares about people in all of these spaces. So Jesus calls us to do hard things and the Bible's just one story after another after another of God's people doing hard things. And Nehemiah is a fantastic example of someone who shows us the joy of doing uh, hard things. So, you, got, you guys okay with that? Are you guys okay about talking about doing hard things? Can you guys handle that just for about 15 minutes? In fact, tell your neighbor, God made you to do hard things. Tell your neighbor that. Yeah. And some of you are like, hey, I didn't need you to tell me that. I'm already doing it. Okay. I got it. Let me tell you about Nehemiah. So just a little background on Nehemiah. Nehemiah grew up in Persia in the 400s BC. Nehemiah's grandparents had been taken captive a hundred years before during the Babylonian Wars. Nehemiah, as an immigrant family, as part of an immigrant family, became extremely successful in his career and ended up working directly for the king of Persia, who at the time was arguably the most powerful person in the whole world. And Nehemiah had heard stories about how his home country, where his great-grandparents came from, had been destroyed. And how the capital city, Jerusalem, was in ruins. And he'd heard about how the walls around Jerusalem were torn down. And he'd heard the jokes. And he'd heard the snide comments about Jerusalem and Israel and how weak it was and how pitiful it was and how embarrassing it was. And Nehemiah knew that if only somebody would go back to Jerusalem and reconvene the people and rebuild the wall, the rebuilt wall would be a symbol to the people and to the world of the rebuilding of their nation, of rebuilding their families, of rebuilding their faith, of rebuilding the opportunity to be a testimony for God in this world. And so Nehemiah, Came up with a great plan. And you know what Nehemiah, Nehemiah told the people, he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to build a wall and I will get the Persians to pay for it. It's in the text. Donald Trump didn't come up with that. It's in the Bible, man. Nehemiah figured out how to build the wall and get the Persians to pay for it. So he gathered the people and in this incredible feat of leadership, he overcame all this opposition and he got the wall built faster and better than anybody thought that he could. His main antagonist in this effort was a guy named Sandballot. Everybody say Sandballot. Yeah, it sounds like a villain from a Disney movie, doesn't it? Sandballot. Well, Sandballot was the, was the enemy and, he, and he, is, he was a bad guy and he's always scheming to discourage Nehemiah and to try to make Nehemiah believe that it couldn't be done. So Nehemiah did something really hard and I can't go into all the details, but I just wanna read some from Nehemiah chapter six. We'll start in verse one. Here's what the word of God says. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and all the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time, I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at, I don't know, on the plane of, oh no. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them saying, I sent messengers to them saying, I sent messengers to them saying, I, them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down." Can we also say that, that line together, isn't that a great line? I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sam it for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So come now and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to them saying, No such things as you have, as you say, have been done. For you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Skip down to verse 15. So the wall was finished on the twenty-fifth day of the month Elul in fifty-two days. And When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. God has given us a great work in our neighborhoods and in the nations. He's given us a great work and the work is possible because God's given us the work to do and God's will is always possible. And whenever you face a great challenge, there's always two issues. There's two questions you have to figure out the answer to when you face a great challenge, when you face a great decision. Question number one, what is the right decision and what is the best decision? What is the right decision or the best decision? That's question number one. Question number two, how do you implement the right decision? Question number one is always, what is the right decision? Question number two, how do you implement the right decision? Now, Christians always get fouled up and churches get messed up because churches, when they're faced with a great challenge they, they, they don't wanna talk about what is the right decision first. Churches instead get distracted with question number two. How do we implement the right decision? So if you say, we're gonna adopt this people group, we're gonna adopt this nation that's a, around the world and we're gonna pour, we're gonna get the, the Bible translated and we're gonna put missionaries in there and we're gonna train pastors. You can say, well, is that the right decision? But instead of arguing about that, churches come over here and they start going, Well, how are we gonna pay for that? Who's gonna go over there? And how much is that gonna cost? And if we do that, are we still gonna be able to repave the parking lot? Because you know the gym needs a new surface and what are we gonna, and they start arguing about who's gonna do it and who's gonna be in charge of it and how are we gonna do it? That's important, but those are all question number two questions. The real issue is question number one, is this the right thing for us to do? Is this what God is calling us to do? And hey, all of you young people sitting right here, God is calling some of you into the ministry right now. You don't have the final answer. I'm not expecting you to know everything about your future right now for the age that you are, but God is calling some of you right now, and some of you already feel the stirrings of it in your soul, and you can't really explain it all, and I wanna just encourage you with something. As you work through this over the next years with your parents and with your pastors, as you work through this sense of calling that God's putting on your life, don't let the question number two question Keep you from answering the question number one question. What is God calling you to do? What is the right decision? Yeah, but how am I going to make a living? But how am I going to, who's anybody ever going to marry me? Where am I going to go to college? How's this even going to work? I don't even know. Okay, question number two, important. Answer question number one first. And some of you that are adults, some of you have been Christians a long time and God called you a long time ago and you've resisted it and ignored it, and you've done other things until the voice of God about that has gotten softer and softer and softer, but every once in a while, you can still hear it. And God could be calling you I mean, as a 30-year-old, as a 40-year-old, as a 50-year-old, as a 60-year-old. And you're saying, yeah, yeah, but Jimmy, you know, he might be calling me, but what about this and how am I gonna afford it and how am I gonna make a living? What about my business and what about my house? And what? Question number two, ma'am. Answer question number one before the Lord. Because what happens is if you answer question number one, yes, God is calling me to do it. Then you must work out question number two. If the answer to question number one is God's not calling me to do it, then why fool with question number two? Why wrestle with all that? If God is calling you to do it, you have to figure out question number two. If he's not calling you to do it, you don't have to worry about question number two. But God's calling some of us in a special way to do some hard things. Andy Stanley said the clearer the vision, the easier the decisions. The clearer the vision, the easier the decisions. Should we plant a church in a neighborhood that we're not reaching right here in Birmingham? Should we adopt an unreached people group? Should we invest in children and teenagers and young families? Should we make sure that our style of worship in the room, when people show up in our facilities and who we have on our platform, sends a message that all the people in Birmingham are welcome here? Or should we not do those things? We got to hang out the welcome sign. Nehemiah answered question number one. He was going to build the wall. He wasn't going to be distracted by a sand ballot and all the question number twos. Well, how do we do that? How do we answer that? Just four thoughts. I don't know if you like to take notes on things. I hope you're in a habit of taking notes when you hear a Bible. So just four thoughts you might want to write. Number one, you have to see what other people won't see. You have to see what other people won't see. Nehemiah saw the wall for what it was. When you read the book of Nehemiah, he saw that the wall was broken down. He saw that it was an embarrassment. He saw that it was a blight on the reputation of God. And everybody else could see the wall. It's not like Nehemiah had special x-ray vision or special construction knowledge. Everybody could see the wall was broken down, but Nehemiah was the one who could see the future. He could see a better future. He could see a path where God was going to use him and the people around him to make the situation better, to, to fix the broken places in the wall. And God is going to use some of you to do some special things because you're going to invest your finances. You're going, to invest your, you're going to be invested with emotional engagement. You're going to go with your presence and your prayers. You're going to get engaged in a special way. And when you do, God is going to let you see some things that other people can't see. And when you see the needs that other people aren't seeing, it's going to animate you. It's going to activate you so that you begin to do harder things than you've ever done before and lots of people can see your problems they can see the problems in this church and in this city and in this world it's not hard to find people to tell you what the problems are is it Pastor George they'll tell you we don't have enough money young people don't want to come to church anymore we got a new pastor the church of the highlands is taking over the world man they're an unstoppable force. Our deacons are just behind the times. You know, our city has a very difficult history when it comes to race. There are all these people moving in from around the world. They're messing up our school system. Inflation is terrible. How am I gonna give more when my money doesn't go as far as it did last year? And yet, God cares about every person and every place. People are from every language and every race You might say, well, Jimmy, that's hard. You're in Alabama now. We don't live in South Florida. You don't understand how it is here. Oh, I understand how it is here. I'm from Alabama. All my people are from Alabama. My people are from Clayton, Alabama, Barber County. That's where the family cemetery plot is. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, my dad, my plot is in Barber County, Clayton, Alabama, right outside between the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church. I know about Alabama. It is hard, and it is going to be a problem. But is this about the Great Commission and about getting Jesus to the people who need him? Or is this about protecting some of our favorite things about our lives and our culture? Lots of people can see the problems, but who's going to fix it? Lots of people can see the problems in your marriage. Lots of people can see the problems with your kids or in your business. But the leaders have to see it and develop a path towards something better. And God will help you do it. So we need to be aspirational about our church. We need to be aspirational about our marriages. We need to be aspirational about our children. It's okay if you're not okay. It's not okay to stay not okay. And that's what Nehemiah does in the whole story. He sees what other people can't see yet. And he aspires for them until they catch on. And he shows them a way forward until they catch on. That's why he said, I'm doing a great work and I won't come down. So part of the joy of doing hard things is when God helps you as a church see the nations and the neighborhoods the way that he sees them and love the nations and neighborhoods the way that he loves them. Number two, you have to see what other people don't see, but number two, you have to feel what other people won't feel. You have to feel what other people won't feel. Nehemiah feels the problem of the broken down wall. He feels it in his guts. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter one. In Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah, as a grown man, a successful man, Nehemiah breaks down and cries over the brokenness of his city. I mean, do you love this city? God's put you here. You care about the city? Because Nehemiah's weeping over the brokenness in his own city, and he's cried about it, and he's prayed about it, and he cares about it so much, he decides that he's gonna leave his home, he's going to leave his job, he's gonna leave his business. He upsets the apple cart of his entire life because of how deeply he feels the need to repair this broken wall for the name of God, for the reputation of God, for the glory of God. And one of the... Motivations for Nehemiah fixing the wall is Nehemiah wants the people around the world to know how great God is. And boy, we're planting churches here and around our nation. We're ministering around the world. People around the world begin to hear how great God is, but we gotta feel something. You know, in the old days, churches called it a burden. A burden. You ever had a burden for something that God puts on your hearts? I'll show you that family again. Our family, you know, if you look at our family, you might think, well, Jimmy, you know, you probably have one of those magic marriages because you're a pastor, and you probably have magic children that never get in any trouble. (laughs) I have a wonderful marriage. I have a wonderful wife. I've been married to her for 27 years. So honored to be married to my wife, Kristen. I I love every one of those children. They're good, but our kids are bucking broncos, okay? They are. I mean, our kids, I got the, my kids, my kids have been in fistfights. My kids has been involved with the police. My kids have been suspended. I mean, I got the only kids I've ever heard of been suspended from homeschool multiple times. And there they are right there. <laughs> Genesis chapter three, God said that Eve would feel pain in childbearing. And when I was younger, I thought that just meant the physical pain of the birth event. But now that I have adult children, how many of you guys have adult children? Would you raise your you have adult children? All right, keep your hand up if the pain has stopped. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Chris and I, we've been down in the floor in our bedroom crying tears and soaking our carpet with our prayerful tears, begging God to turn the hearts of our children around from time to time. But we, we've, been, we've been praying to God that God would Give us a breakthrough with our own children. You ever done that? When you start doing that, you feel something, man. When it's your children, you feel something. You're not just praying King James prayers like you do before Wednesday night supper at church. When it's your children, you're calling on God. You're asking God to do something. That's why when we sing that song earlier, I speak Jesus. I speak Jesus for my family. Do you guys sing that? But when I sing that, I think about my son over in the Middle East. I think about my son in in Louisville. I think about my boys out there in college and what they're up to, my kids in high school and what they're wrestling. I want to speak Jesus over my grandchildren. I want to speak Jesus over them. But you feel something. And God wants us to feel that way about people of every nation and every neighborhood and every race and every language and every place. He wants us to feel it. What does it take for us to feel it? to feel what they might feel, someone of another race who might watch the news or vote differently than you do, someone new to this country who's very uncomfortable, they're just as uncomfortable around you as you are around them, someone who's gay, someone who is straight, someone who grew up in another religion, someone who's of another gender, someone who's been hurt, someone who's in recovery. All of these people think that our churches are going to push them down and push them out. And what Jesus wants us to do is pull them in and lift them up. We can't be a push them down and push them out, people. We've got to be a pull them in and lift them up, church. Love for all the nations. Love for all the neighborhoods. Number three, you have to believe what other people won't believe. Nehemiah believed that God was at work. Nehemiah believed that God wasn't finished with his city. He wasn't finished with Jerusalem and he wasn't finished with his people. And what Nehemiah wanted to do appeared impossible. No one else would dare to try it. So Nehemiah engaged in a great work that transcended the predictable results of money and effort and talent. And that's what we have to do if we're gonna be great commission people. In our neighborhoods and in the nations, we have to believe and try some things that are gonna depend on the power of God because the work that we're doing transcends the predictable results of money and effort and talents. That's God's stuff. The pre- stuff you can do that you can predict you could do it with just the right amount of money, effort and talent doesn't require God. We got to put money and effort and talent, but it's gotta be bigger than that. And that's the only way we're gonna reach the nations. So you gotta believe what other people won't believe. Hey, will you believe that God wants to do a great work in the nations and in, in the neighborhoods? Number four. You have to do what other people won't do. Now Nehemiah had to handle fundraising. He did that. He had to handle squabbling among the volunteers. He did that. He had to deal with a government that was hostile and was always trying to get in his way. So he handled that. He had to organize people that were like herding cats. He he did that. He had to fight off physical attacks. He did that, but when he finished the wall, Sanballat and Tobias are coming out there every day, every day, four days in a row, five days in a row, They're trying to trap him. They're trying to physically fight him. They're trying to get his mind on other things instead of the important things that God had Nehemiah doing. But Nehemiah loves his city and he's willing to bleed for it. And he's willing to die for it. And he's willing to empty his pockets for it. And he's willing to meet every challenge and overcome every obstacle. And look, just like at Family Church, we have to love our city. Shades Mountain, you have to love your city. You have to love your city. And loving the city is not just loving the name, or loving something you read about in a history book, loving the city is loving the people who are in the city right now. You gotta love it, every corner of it, every person in it, every aspect of it. And because Nehemiah loved this city and changed his city, the whole world noticed. And the whole world thinks about God when they think about Nehemiah. You say, what do you mean the whole world noticed? I don't know, let's just do the math. I looked it up on Google. Birmingham is 6,500 miles away from Jerusalem. Nehemiah has been dead for over 2,600 years. And what are we talking about tonight? Something that happened. 2,600 years and 6,500 miles away. The whole world's talking about it still. Number five, last thing. If you want to do hard things and take joy, you've got to finish what other people won't finish. Nehemiah, he finished that wall. And because he did, people who didn't know God had to acknowledge that God was working. And that's why you can't quit. You can't quit giving, and you can't quit going, and you can't quit praying, and you can't quit cheering, and you can't quit singing. Because if Nehemiah doesn't finish the wall, the story's never told. And the story only matters because Nehemiah finished the wall. It only matters because he did what God called him to do. And so you can't quit. And let's just make it personal. You can't quit on your marriage. You can't quit on your kids. You can't quit on your church. You can't quit on your recovery program. You can't quit on God. You have to finish. You can't quit on these missionaries and church planners. You can't quit on your church. You can't quit on your pastor. You can't quit on your city. You might say, but Pastor Jimmy, it's too hard. I can't do it. Pastor Jimmy, things are changing so fast. I don't like the changes. You're right. It is difficult and things are changing. In fact, they've already changed. Some of us aren't really mad about the changes We're mad that it's 2022 and we're still alive to see it. (laughs) The world's a different place than it was, but God has given you the Holy Spirit and God has given you his word and God has given you a real gospel that really saves and God has let you swim in an ocean of lost people every day and the Holy Spirit's teaching you and empowering you to do a great work that transcends the predictable results of money and effort and talent. And when you read this, it's easy to make Nehemiah the hero of the story just like it would be easy to make some of the people in this room the hero of the story. But Nehemiah wasn't really the hero of this story and you're not really the hero of your story either because every story in the Bible is designed to point us to Christ. Christ is the hero of every story in the Bible. You remember what happened to Jesus on the cross? Jesus hanging on the cross, he's got nails in his hands and nails in his feet and God's put the sins of the world on him and the wrath of God is being poured out on Christ and he's dying for my sins and your sins. He's got that crown of thorns on his head, he's bleeding, he's gasping for breath. And, and, and the soldiers and the priests begin to go by and the, the thieves on either side and they start mocking him. And you remember what they said? Hey, if you're really the son of God, come down off the cross And I wonder if when they said that, if Jesus thought back to the story of Nehemiah, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. And because Jesus has done a great work for us and he finished it, we now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the instructions of the word of God, have a great work to do. And we've got to finish our work for our time. And here's why. Because all over the world there are people who are looking for a place for their heart to call home. Last thing, my wife and I have all these kids a couple years ago. My wife was talking to some ladies in our church and they said, hey, um, would you pray with us, Kristen, because there's these three kids, they're in the foster care system, they're brothers and sisters, they're, they're age, you know, 10 and seven and three and the state's gonna split them up and send them all over the state and We just want a family to come forward so they can stay together. My wife has a huge heart for children, and so she said, you know, I'll pray with you guys, but I'm pretty sure we'll take them at our house. She came home, said, Jimmy, I want you to hear the story of these three children. They need a place to live. I said, oh man, that's too bad. We should pray about that. She said, too late. (laughs) And so those three kids came, and they lived with us for a year. They've gone to live with a family member now they actually still go to our church we still get to see them but those kids have been traumatized so bad and they were so broken and a little seven-year-old kid he's so little guy they're Brazilian kids and he's like this tall and one night I came home from work and uh, Chris said you got to go out in the backyard he's out in the backyard and he's throwing a fit and I went out there, and he was just throwing himself on the ground. He would do this from time, throwing himself on the ground, and he's just screaming and saying horrible things about himself. He was saying, you know, I, I wish I was dead. Um, I wish I had never existed. I hate myself. And he's screaming and crying. I didn't know what to do. I haven't been trained in this, but I just kind of scooped him up, and I put him on my knee, and I just put my arms around him and just held him as tight as I could. He's fighting and squirming and kicking And finally, after a minute, he just kind of stopped fighting and he just kind of leaned in and just started sobbing. I'm talking about sobbing those big old seven-year-old snotty boy tears, you know, making my whole shirt wet. But then he started to say, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. And then he said, but I don't have a home. I don't have anywhere to go. Nobody wants me. I want to go home, but I don't have a home. And all I could do was put my arms around him and say, we love you. We want you. And for now, you have a home. And I was thinking about that little boy, because what he was longing for, is what all the little boys and all the little girls from every neighborhood and every place and every language and every race in this city and the cities around the world is longing for. They want a home for their hearts. And we have a powerful gospel, a crucified and risen savior who invites them find a home for your heart so we can give and we can go and we can pray and we can engage. Because this stuff works. You know why it works? Because there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains. stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the faithfulness of the missionaries who give it all. God, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would stir up in us some who are called that they would yield to that call. Some who need to give in a different way, who need to get engaged in a different way. Would we all follow what you're asking us to do? Thank you for the joy of doing hard things with Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.